Hello and welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I am your host, Allison R. Brown, Executive Director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund, or CJSF, where we provide resources and support to community-based organizations that are working to ensure equity in their schools. Go to cjsfund.org to subscribe to our e-newsletter. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtags C4JS, that's with the number four, or Communities for Just Schools, again, with the number four. On this episode of Schoolhouse, we are talking with Eric Mann, the founder and director of the Labor Community Strategy Center in Los Angeles, California, and Ashley Franklin, an organizer with the Community Rights Campaign at the Labor Community Strategy Center. We're going to talk today about their work to support healthy and equitable learning environments in schools, particularly for young people of color. The Labor Community Strategy Center is leading the charge for a divest-invest strategy that works to shift public dollars used to pay for police and police equipment in schools to instead pay for things that work in schools to keep young people engaged and nurture their healthy development. The Labor Community Strategy Center also was instrumental in developing the Movement for Black Lives policy platform, which we'll also talk about today. Welcome, Eric and Ashley. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks, Allison. Thank you. So, Eric, what is the Labor Community Strategy Center, and what role has it played in building movements over the years? Well, first of all, again, we're really glad to be having these kind of conversations, because I think we need to be having conversations about where the movement is going. I'm a product of the movement, so I uh, the Strategy Center really began, my Walkyoya would always say it began in 1492, when the indigenous people began their resistance. But my life began in 1964, when I joined the Congress of Racial Equality as a field secretary in Harlem and the Northeast. I work with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. I work with Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Later, I work with the Black Panther Party. I've been in different revolutionary organizations. I worked 10 years in an auto factory with the United Auto Workers New Directions Movement. So by the time we started the Strategy Center in 1989, parenthetically, the year of the fall of the Berlin Wall, I was already a veteran of the movement, but I was starting the Strategy Center at a time of a real crisis in the movement. That is to say, Reagan was elected in 1980. The movement virtually, I would have to say, hardly existed by 1989. So the Strategy Center was, you could say, going against form. People said we should move to the right. We thought, no, we should move to the left. We should reestablish the legitimate wonderful history, in particular, of the Black and Latino movements of resistance in this country. We wanted to speak with a new voice, but a fresh voice, but one that was not trying to break or disassociate itself with the revolutionary movements in the United States, but rather to continue their legacy in a new context. Mm -hmm. So we opened up a, an office, and we began sending organizers to Wilmington, which is a primarily Latino area, to deal with problems of air pollution and corporate pollution. And then we formed the Bus Riders Union, which was a multiracial, again, primarily Black-Latino movement of bus riders. And by 1992, when the Urban Rebellion took place in response 
to the police brutality against Rodney King and the exoneration of the police, we came up with the slogan, the social welfare state, not the police state. And we've been on that track ever since. Ashley, what is the community rights campaign and how are young people of color really centered in that work? Yeah, and I think Eric set it up perfectly. I think community rights campaign primary objective and goal was to build a mass campaign across LA to put demands on the system to try to build a social welfare state and push back against the privatizing prison, police, polluting state, um, which we are currently living in. And so I think through the community rights campaign, it was about organizing, getting out in the streets, organizing on the buses, as well as organizing young people inside of high school, their parents, teachers to fight back against some of the injustices that we were seeing inside of our communities um, and primarily taking on the police front on. I think one of the major pieces was attacking the criminalization of young people that was happening or is happening inside of high schools right now. And I think the way we were trying to approach it was how can we disinvest in officers? How do we disarm officers to ultimately dismantle officers, delegitimize their purpose and their roles inside of schools, particularly in California, where we have the nation's largest school police department that at the peak of giving out truancy citations, which was a major issue here in LA, where officers would give tickets to young people who were tardy to school or not going to school. It was just our modern day stop and frisk our modern-day black holes, essentially. And so it was one of the ways in which we felt we can tackle and put demands on the system to basically say, we don't want truancy tickets. So we took that on, and it was a six-year campaign to to get the police, the school district, the city council to say that, oh, maybe we shouldn't give tickets. But it was deeper than the tickets. It was the interaction that young people were having with officers, familiarizing, normalizing their presence in their schools, their presence on the buses, their presence in their neighborhoods, and normalizing the idea that it's okay to cite young people. It's okay to search young people. It's okay to basically relinquish any little rights that they have left with these truancy citations. So community rights campaign is really focusing on putting demands on the system to see a huge change in the lived realities of black and brown Latino working class people inside of South LA, Boyle Heights, and throughout the county. You know, Ashley, I just want to underscore one thing that you're talking about there, and you're talking about tickets, like tickets that you get for driving over the speed limit, that young people would get tickets that they would have to pay if they were late to school, right? Right. So young people, if you were late to school, you would be stopped by an officer just to go through the process of a young person. You're on public transportation here in Los Angeles, which never runs on time. Mm -hmm. You get off the bus. At the bus stop, you would either have a sheriff, LAPD, or our school police department that would issue you a citation for being tardy to school. And it doesn't end with just the ticket. It's the questioning that happens. It's the handcuffs that happens. And then on top of that, you have a citation that you must go to court. So you're introducing young people into the criminal legal system before they even get a diploma. So I think... As we think about LAUSD and our school district, or just even the policing that we're seeing inside of our community, I think it's the normalizing of having not just the presence, but the normalizing of introducing young people to a criminal legal system before they even get a diploma. For showing up late to school. 
Yeah, for showing up late to school. And what other kinds of things would young people get tickets for? There is a whole slew of things such as carrying a marker, could be seen as the intent to vandalize, could get you a ticket. It could be disturbing the peace, which is everything from actually getting into a physical fight to speaking loudly. And there is possession of tobacco, not using it, but just possession of it, possession of marijuana, not using it, just having it in your possession. So these are all the things, the everyday experiences of young people just living is being criminalized, was being criminalized. And so a lot of our work was to, after winning the truancy ticket battle and amending that law completely, Mm -hmm. virtually seeing a 90% decrease in overall citations given out, what we also noticed was that we have to take on these other little things that allow these interactions that young people were having with officers. So we took on the something what we call the Equal Protection Plan, which was a new police protocol where young people not only said, we don't want to see this happening inside of our schools, but they actually wrote a protocol that was adopted by the school police and the district as a new way of how do you interact with young people, but not like these are the steps of basically decriminalizing all the things that should have never been criminalized in the first place. And so will you talk about your work, Ashley, to divest from police and police equipment and invest in healthy learning environments in Los Angeles? And and how has that work taken on a national scope? And so maybe... Eric, you can position the national, and then I could talk about the local level work. The thing that the Strategy Center believes is that we are a national organization, and we want people doing work. If you're in Philadelphia, if you're in Cleveland, if you're in Chicago, if you're in Jackson, Mississippi, don't let people tell you you're doing local work. That's very condescending. The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party was national. The Black Panthers started in Oakland. The Black Panthers started as a Lowndes County Freedom Organization in Alabama. The Montgomery bus boycott was not local. The Harlem Rebellion was not local. So one of the things that we're trying to do is win the battle of ideas. There are so many ideas right now that I think are hurting the movement. And one of them is that people who can set up a post office box in Washington, D.C. are national. Mm. And people who work door-to-door in a city of 4 million people inside a county of 10 million are local. That makes no sense. Mm -hmm. So the work that Ashley and I and Manuel Criollo and Barbara Holland and Jenny Martinez and Elma Gomez and Cindy Donis and everybody is trying to build a movement on the ground that's always thinking national. But we think our specialty is you've got to win something to go national. You know, mm-hmm. right now we're involved in a campaign to get President Obama to end the entire 1033 program, which you want to get to. But we focused more on the Los Angeles Unified School District, not because it was local, but because we felt this could be a national victory that could give us the leverage to impact the national debate. And I'll come back to that after Ashley describes the work, but we're all building the work at the school board. We're all building the work nationally. You know what I mean? It's not that Ashley does the local work and I do the national work. We sit down in the school board. We won that fight together. And now we're all trying to get people around the country to say that in the last five months of the Obama administration, he must issue 
an executive order to totally end the 1033 program, which gives federal aid, federal weapons, to so-called local state police departments. We want to end the militarization of the communities. One more thing, before I go back to Ashley, is because the work she's doing on the ground is pretty magnificent, is a lot of our work is trying to win the battle of ideas because there's been a terrible erosion of people's perception of their rights, which has been the system's mental attack on black people. Mumia Abu-Jamal used the word menticide to say that what's happened to black people, a form of genocide, is the destruction of people's ideological, historical perceptions. I know, Allison, when you and I were having dinner, you said that two of the things that the movement needs more is a sense of history and a sense of internationalism. Mm -hmm. And we're trying very hard to reconstruct young people's understanding that what's happening to you is what, well, that's why I actually talked about the Black Codes, yeah. that this ain't new. Mm -hmm. This is unfortunately a long it's history of anti-Black. It's been here before. Mm -hmm. So back to my sister, Ashley, but thanks for the back to you and back to me. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So I think, you know, in L.A., what's really important to understand is the school district, the school police applied for military-grade weapons through the federal 1033 program. And when they applied for these weapons, it was a tank, it was 61 M16 rifles, it was three grenade launchers. And young people understood this not simply as they applied for these weapons, so we're going to move on. But they understood that this was a full-on call-out to war. Ashley, you're talking about the school police in Los yes, Angeles that had grenade launchers and the like. Tanks. Yes. So it was the school police department mm -hmm. that applied for these. Outside of LAPD, outside of the sheriff's department, we have a school police department that applied for these weapons. So it was clear to young people that it was a call to war and the war was going to be happening on the black and Latino students inside of the schools. It was an occupation of our neighborhoods. It was an occupation of our schools. And so you can't disassociate history mm -hmm. with what's currently happening. So young people were clear that it's Soweto. It is when we see people rising, demanding power, dignity, and respect, the response is suppression. The response is killing. Mm -hmm. So this was what we saw in Soweto. This is what we saw in Ferguson. This is what we saw in, in Baltimore and so many other cases where people took to the streets when they saw loved ones, Black people, mm -hmm. being killed. And so we knew and taking on this campaign with our organizing, it wasn't just simply like, it's wrong that they applied for these weapons mm -hmm, here in L.A., mm -hmm. but it was wrong that this program existed in its entirety. Why do we have surplus weapons, but we don't have surplus books? We don't have surplus schools. We don't have surplus teachers. And so this, to us, says that your priorities rest in killing, arresting, handcuffing Black people, Latino folks working class people. That's the, your priorities. It's not to educate. It's not to ensure that we as a community can basically survive every day. So this campaign was going out into the streets and organizing again on the buses, inside of the schools, doing door knocking, getting over 6,000 petitions signed, 
and doing classroom presentations with folks, but also putting up lawn signs inside of people's neighborhoods and saying, having Obama's face and saying, who is the person that's in charge of this program? Mm -hmm. And why are we so afraid and so complacent in allowing this to happen inside of our communities and not calling on the person who can end this today? Mm -hmm. And so really challenging people to think beyond just what's happening in LA, but what's happening across the nation. It isn't just like, just not in my backyard. It's not in any of my, my people's backyards, not just here in the U.S., but also abroad. So one of our demands was clear. We wanted LAUSD to return the weapons. We wanted it in to the 1033 program, mm -hmm. but we didn't want to see those weapons transported to another country as well. We understand weapons of mm -hmm. war means you are going to war. We don't think that there should be a war here in the U.S. against poor Black and Latino folks, and it shouldn't be a war abroad as well. So that's a little bit of like the mindset that we were going into with this campaign. And it looks like just young people shutting down school board meetings. Like, how can we sit here and talk about classes when you're occupying my school? Like, how can we sit here and talk about how we need higher test scores when at the end of the day, your plan is to kill me? Mm -hmm. You can't say you have a tank because you think it's what? Fill in the blank. There's no blank to be filled in, but I plan to go to war with you. Mm -hmm. So I think it was the braveness of young people and adults who went to those school board meetings, shut those meetings down, the braveness of of them to also go out in the community and talk about things that, you know, everyone is feeling. We feel it in our heart. But here's a clear strategic plan of how to dismantle it. Here's a clear strategic plan on how to get rid of it. And so, you know, I think one other thing history has taught us just here in L.A., we understand that 41st and Central, a very historic site for Black Panthers here in L.A., mm -hmm. where the first ever SWAT team was created, and it was created to kill the Black Panthers. We also know here with that information, we understand that we have been and continue to be the epicenter of creating militarized police. So a victory in L.A. was a victory across the nation because what starts here is then transported to other cities. So if we can nip it in the bud here, we can nip it in the bud in other cities. So that was the, the whole process of the campaign. I want to be clear for folks listening that the 1033 program is a federal program that provides local police departments with leftover military equipment. Things like tanks and grenade launchers, rocket launchers that school district police can apply for and have gotten all over the country. Los Angeles Unified School District Police actually being one of those police departments that received 1033 military equipment from the federal government. And already there are issues, and we've talked about these issues on the podcast previously, but the ways in which people of color, young people of color, Black and Latino young people in particular, are policed in their school environment rather than protected in their school environment by police. And the presence of military equipment simply exacerbates that reality. Um, so I just wanted to be clear about what we're talking about. And Ashley, is it unprecedented for school police to actually receive military equipment of this caliber from the federal government? Or have we seen that before? Yeah, I don't think it's unprecedented. 
it is allowed. If you have a school police department and if you want to, if you want to apply to get the weapons, you can. It's a one page application with check boxes of all the goodies that you want to occupy schools with. So any school to police department could pretty much apply for it. Lately, not lately, but after our huge demands that we were putting out, President Obama actually put out a directive and said that schools could no longer participate in getting some, not all, some of the weapons, which were the most egregious tanks and grenade launchers. So what we saw as a huge victory is actually something he's debating to take away and say, oh, actually, never mind. If you all want to apply for it, you can get it. And so I do think that for us as a movement, we have to think about like how brave are we with our demands? How much are we willing to fight for our people and prioritize black people, Latino people, working class people, opposed to the niceties of playing with democracy and actually put out demands on Obama to say, Obama, that's not where we are as a people, nor am I willing to sacrifice another one of my people being shot in the streets to play nice. Eric, I know that there is no silver bullet or perfect formula, but what are the key components of any successful movement? What do you need to build a movement? The first thing is I really appreciate it. You know, I, and you know me. I mean, I stay up almost all night lately just thinking and thinking and thinking. Uh, I think organizing takes a lot of thinking. I read every night. I read Paul Robeson's Here I Stand. I read Black Reconstruction in America. I read Lenin, What is to be Done. I read... The Art of War by Sun Tzu. I read my own book, Playbook of Aggressive, 16 Qualities, The Successful Organizer. And I think a lot about strategy and tactics, which is why we call this the organization the Strategy Center, not the Protest Center. I think the, the first element of a successful campaign, a successful movement, is to truly win the battle of ideas and to take on the system and put the system on the defensive. An example is we just negotiated successfully with Chief Stephen Zipperman. Now, we're very fortunate. He's the chief of police for Los Angeles Unified School District Police by OESPD. He said to us that, you know, we were sort of taking it seriously, but when you start talking about military racism, he said, I don't like that. Well, you're not supposed to like it. But it shook up the department. They didn't want to believe that they were guilty of military racism, so we charged the school district with educational and military racism. And then they had to say, we are not carrying out educational and military racism, which is the first great thing, because then they start repeating your demand mm -hmm. by denying it. So I'm good at this. You know, I was trained by very good, you know, by Fannie Lou Hamer, by Malcolm X. We put the moral argument in the face of the system. That's the first element. The second is to build a strong base it could be among a very small number of highly disciplined and highly committed people who are directly oppressed by the system, whether it is the young people with whom Ashley works. You know, Barbara Lott Holland, our associate director with whom I've worked for 15 years, comes right out of South L.A. Mm -hmm. When she speaks, like Fannie Lou Hamer, she has that moral authority. When the young people showed up and said, we are not bulletproof, to their own school board. Mm -hmm. What was the school board supposed to say? Now, in a racist Southern school board, they wouldn't care. In a Northern racist school board, they pretend <laughs> to care. <laughs> Why did it take us 18 months? 
So the second thing I'm arguing is the first is you need a clear ideological challenge, a moral argument. Two, you need to develop a tremendous base among, as I say, it could be a very small at first core of people that totally grasp the campaign and where it's going. Third, you need a tactical plan. At the Strategy Center, we always ask ourselves, what does victory look like? Where do we want to end this campaign? And we decided that we wanted to end this campaign, not just with them giving back the weapons, Mm -hmm. but with a full inventory and an apology. Why was the apology so important? Because we could have claimed victory, and we might not have gotten the apology, but we wanted people to know that we demanded the apology, whether we got it or not. Mm -hmm. It's not okay to take a weapon to kill our kids and give the weapon back and say, no harm, no foul. We would not accept that. So the apology, which was carefully crafted by Monica Garcia, a member of the board, and by Chief Ziffman, I have to say, I cry every time I read it, because dang, we won that. Mm -hmm. And they have to say, we are sorry. That's all the, you know, after that, it was all downhill, right? We are sorry if, you know how they say it, Mm -hmm. if we were insensitive to the historical demands of the strategy center and the communities that you represent. We think our relationship with the strategy center is so important. Then the other thing is you have to train people to say, are you in this for a very long haul? Because we choose high visibility, high stakes, high possibilities of victory. Those things you don't get easily. Mm-hmm. After you said just very quietly, and not quietly, but uh, simply, it took us six years to win the truancy ticket fight. But after that, things start to move faster because you won a big thing. So then we won the equal protection plan, right? Then we won, it took us a year and a half, not six years to get something even bigger, which is to get them the weapons back. Now we only got five months left to get President Obama to end the program altogether. Mm-hmm. The last one I say is you really need real victories. I mean, this is a hard thing, but then you have to sort of escalate the pace of the campaign. So when you win, you got to move faster and harder because sometimes the problem is you're so exhausted from the victory that you sort of go, oh, God, thank God, you know, and you lose the momentum. And this, is, I'll say, comes to, you know, I rarely talk about funding as a strategy, but mm-hmm. we are very fairly funded. We are happy to say that we have money to do our job, but we lose momentum through not having enough troops, you know what I mean? Not having enough resources. You're taking on the President of the United States, the, the Department of Defense, the LASPD, the LAPD, and we're a small organization. And we do have our ebbs and flows. And we don't have a second round of troops to say, hey guys, you just chill mm-hmm. for a couple of weeks, you know, mm-hmm. let us come in and take the, you know, we have to sort of sit down and say, all right, it was great take a weekend off, and Monday morning, let's go back and, you know, go back into battle. So the issue of funding groups on the ground, I think, and we really want to thank your work, I mean that, for grasping the historical role of groups building real bases Mm -hmm. in black and Latino communities is the central possibility of any historical change, in my opinion. Eric, speaking of movement building... What are your thoughts about the recent Movement for Black Lives policy platform? The first thing is I'm very proud of them, very proud of the the writers. It's graphically very beautiful, beautifully well-written. I think how we present ideas 
I think it has the kind of comprehensiveness that the movement needs. Many of the people who wrote it are are close friends and allies. Several of them are directly uh, organizers who are are at the Labor Community Strategy Center, who we helped train and in return helped do great work for us. Several of our reports are quoted in it. But again, I want to be clear that we consider it an allied project, but not something that the Strategy Center would claim as ours. But that's a good thing. You know, we want more initiatives in the movement. We want more people to develop a physical space. Like we're opening up Strategy in Seoul in Los Angeles, which is a physical space. And then our friends from Cadre, they're opening up a physical space. And then our friends from LA Can, who also are our close allies, are opening up a physical space. So that's a great thing. We need more places that people can exist. Similarly, the Strategy Center has been kind of well-known for we published Reconstructing Los Angeles from the Bottom Up, a new vision for urban transportation, a call to reject the federal weed and seed program. I write books on Katrina. We've been encouraging people to write more Mm -hmm. and put your stuff in writing because it has duration, it has impact. So we're very proud of it, and we're, we're planning to have some of the authors on my radio show, Voices from the Front Lines, very soon. Eric and Ashley, you know, we saw recently a letter written by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, in support of the Movement for Black Lives. And I wonder if you would both talk about the importance of intergenerational experiences and how young people are working with their elders right now to bring about systemic change. Ashley? I think one, all of our campaigns is intergenerational, mainly because the people who are most oppressed should be at the forefront of the, of the fight. Mm-hmm. So it's young people, it's elders, it's your parents, your mom, your, your grandma. So for our organization, we've been very clear that we're, we're trying to build an intergenerational fight, having both folks inside of monthly meetings to strategize together as well as out organizing together. So the importance is if you're mainly the people who are being most impacted, then you should be at the forefront of that fight. So, you know, for us, it isn't really that separate. It's inherently embedded in the organizing work that we do. Well, similarly, when I was, like, let's say when I was with the Congress of Racial Equality, when I worked with the Newark Community Union Project, I was 21, 22, 23. When we went door to door in the community, we, we talked to all the people, and many of the most wise and militant and experienced people were, of course, all the people. I mean, Fannie Lou Hamer, who was, remains my patron saint, you could say. I talked to her a lot. I was fortunate enough to spend three hours with her where she talked about to 15 young organizers about her understandings of history and how she felt the Democratic Party sold them out at the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party Challenge. You read the book, I think it's by Charles Payne, I've Got the Light of Freedom, and he, he talks about how Robert Moses went out to Mississippi, and he met with Amzie Moore, who had been in Mississippi for 40 years, mm-hmm. you know, taking on the Klan. And it's that explosive relationship between people of all generations. We've been having some struggle with some of the younger organizers who we think are over-elevating the role of youth. 
and saying things like, well, this is not your grandfather's civil rights movement. And my answer is, no, it's not. And we'd be lucky as hell if we could get our grandfather's civil rights movement back. Malcolm and Martin and Snick and Cor and Jenny Lukamer. And so we are having some struggle with some of the young people mm-hmm. to say, look, it's great. Young is cool, but so is every other generation if it's a national liberation struggle. And don't act like you've invented this stuff. And don't act like history is not relevant to you. And that goes to the role of struggle because you have to be willing to challenge other people. And we're getting a good response. It's not, you know, people say, I never thought of that, you know. So in our organization, yes, we are one of our greatest members died at 103 a couple of years ago. And we have, you know, we started, I think, what's the youngest answer that you know of? Um, five. <laughs> a yeah. five-year-old really? when we had our, yeah when we had our junior SYO hey <laughs> so you know we think that if we see black people as an oppressed people we see mm-hmm. Latino people as oppressed people then it means the entire people are oppressed and to get that community move in unison takes so much respect for the history of each person in it and also, I would say, as somebody who's been in the movement for 50 years, and I still think I'm in the youth movement, see, I, I don't get it, you know, <laughs> I wake up in the morning and I think I'm in the youth movement. But we don't want to denigrate people in the 60s, 70s, and 80s as if we're somehow historically in the past. Mm-hmm. We want people to feel like as long as you're alive, there's a fight to be had. Now, having said that, Young people have always played a great role in history. They are most fearless. They are, you know, I I don't want to underestimate the wonderful contribution of youth. It's not all equal. You know, we want a young people driving this movement. We just want to get young people to say, think more strategically. And remember, I don't know how to break it to you, but when you're 24, you're going to get kicked out of the youth group, kid. (laughs) You know, they're going to talk about you like, hey, you you passed your prime. Mm -hmm. So... I think organizing is fun. You know, I do this every day, and it's, I see my own foibles. <laughs> I see my own weaknesses. I see the weirdness among people. And organizing is sort of trying to create a new coherence of sanity, mm-hmm. you know, in an age of insanity. In, and people like sanity. People gravitate towards sanity and towards strategy. And um, I'm very optimistic right now. Ashley, tell us a story of success. We've heard about the victories that you've had with the truancy citations and removing that as a practice of the police. And we've heard about your your victory with the 1033 program. What has been one of your greatest successes in your work with the Labor Community Strategy Center? And can I ask one question? Is that okay? Of course. One suggestion would be to talk about Freedom Summer, because to me that's one of my favorite successes (laughs) of your work. Okay. Um, I would definitely say one of my favorite moments in doing the work is, of course, winning campaigns um, and actually seeing young people and their parents like jumping around and excited that we actually put a demand on the system and the system had to transform or change itself. But throughout those processes, 
organizing isn't just getting people to do something, but it's actually building relationships with community members. So I think that seeing young people who started in high school in ninth grade who, you know, some I knew in eighth and seventh grade, Michael Davis I knew in the seventh grade, Laura Aguilar I knew in the ninth grade. And, you know, they came into high school at Manual Arts High School and was just in awe about the realities of what high school meant for them. They were mm-hmm. just thinking about it in a microscopic. Are they older now, Ashley? How old are they now? They're both juniors in college now. Mm-hmm. And so they started with the campaign thinking about, why don't we have enough books? What's going on? Wait, why is the police here? What's going on? And seeing them start off with questions like that to saying that we need to radically transform society, right? And adding things like, how are we thinking about the third world? How are we thinking about the environment? Um, And asking those bigger questions. So seeing young people's minds develop throughout that process, Mm -hmm. it's beautiful, but also building with them and building relationships with them is one of the most beautiful things that I walk away with every day. It's just seeing young people go from a place of feeling like things need to change to I'm about to make some things change. Mm-hmm. That attitude is what I think we need to see more of in our, our society and our world. But also, yeah, like Eric said, Freedom Summer. So every summer we run a, it's about six-week program for young people. They apply during the school year. We have about 30 applications um, of young people, and we limit the class to about 20 people. And so all of the different school sites, they apply, and they are either accepted or not into the program, and they spend the entire summer through intense political ed, starting with what is a social welfare state? What is a prison police privatizing, polluting state? And then going out and being in the community and organizing in a different way. It's one thing to live in your community, but it's another thing to organize in your community and really listen and hear what your neighbors are saying, what your friends are saying on the buses or when you're doing door knocking. So seeing young people dedicate their entire summer, and when I say entire, I mean it's eight hours of long work, four hours of political ed, four hours of on the bus, in the community organizing that mm-hmm. they're doing. So it takes a lot. So I think that, you know, building the relationships with young people and then also seeing them get so committed to campaigns is beautiful and dedicating their entire summer. It's pretty cool. I want to thank you both for your work to really make some things change, to quote Ashley Franklin. And and I'm in the habit of actually quoting Ashley Franklin because, um, Ashley, I remember when we, we spoke at one point and you said, you know, schools are really a microcosm of the larger world. And if we can fix what's happening in schools, we can fix what's happening in the world. So I come back to that quote often, and I want to thank you both for being on, on Schoolhouse today. Eric Mann is the founder and director of the Labor Community Strategy Center in Los Angeles. Ashley Franklin is an organizer with the Community Rights Campaign at the center. Eric, how can folks find you online and through social media? Info at thestrategycenter.org would be great. You can write to me directly, Eric, at Voices from the Frontlines, which is my radio show. As the young people said when they work with me, I'm so glad to work with you, Eric, because that actually is too tough. <laughs> so <laughs> I always thought I was the bad guy. So, uh, Ashley, how do they reach you? 
Yeah, you can reach me at Ashley at thestrategycenter.org or you can reach me on Twitter at AshleyX uh, underscore FFSC. Thanks to all of you for listening in. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.